the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Do you read Stephen King? Good news. There's a club for you. The Losers Club. Every Friday, us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. We sink our teeth into each of King's novels, dive deep into the lore, and review every adaptation. Even better, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Will Wheaton, Mary Lambert, Mick Garris, the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network. Pod people out there, I'm your host, Leo Phillips, and this is another edition of This Must Be the Gig. And if you're wondering what that is, it's a little backstage pass to the world of live music. Each and every week, I bring you a fascinating conversation, I think, from the beating heart of the live music and performance scene. And what that could mean is if you've ever wanted to know how festival founders curate their lineups, how musicians uh, get on with tours that are grueling for weeks and weeks on end, choreographers, an actor, really anyone obsessed with performance in the way that we are. But before we dig into this week's fantastic interview, let's check in with our constant companion here at TMBTG Studios, Engineer Adam. Hello! Hey! Or co-host, shall I say? Oh, well, thank you. That's very well. Uh, I'll take that for last week, but you know. Last week's episode was fantastic. Well done. That's very kind of you to say. For anybody tuning in today, Adam was on the ground in Madrid at Mad Cool Festival. I was a foreign correspondent, they could say. (laughs) You were. I just wish we could put you in a raincoat and have some storms (laughs) and put you at the end of a... Yeah, I'm reporting live. Yeah. Reporting live from the center of the storm. (laughs) There you go. How? Yeah. How? 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 How was your weekend? It was great. We are uh, in the midst of Wicker Park Fest as we're recording that here in Chicago, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, you can't throw a stick around here without hitting a music festival. Chicago's uh, full of them. I know, it's so true. And this one had uh, Super Chunk and Screaming Females, Open Mike Eagle, Wavers, Wavers. It's incredible. That's just for a neighborhood festival. You get a lineup like that. And uh, we got to see uh, one in five cinemas in North America and Canada are currently showing 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 70 millimeter, and we got to see that today at the Music Box Theater. That's another that's another uh, great thing about Chicago, access to cinematic events like that one, which is its own kind of performance in a way, if you think about it. I feel like we're plugging Chicago because we are currently high yeah. hey. from serotonin, from vitamin D. Hey, tourism board, hire us. <laughs> no, really though, choose Chicago. That's a thing. And that's, you know, that might seem like a big festival, but we are one week away from perhaps the largest festival in this city every summer. Mm-hmm. I won't say what it is right now, because Why? before we get to that, uh, I want to remind everyone that it is your duty to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever Why? you happen Why to listen to your... do that? Well, so if you believe that... <laughs> if you believe that you don't want to be haunted by share, yeah. then you have to leave us. <laughs> then you have to no. Uh, you so the rule is that if you believe in this podcast, if you want to support it, if you want us to be able to continue it bringing you great do interviews. S H one T. If you believe in it, you have to show us. Yes, you have to subscribe. You have to rate. You have to review. These look are the these, things. Look at, listen to all these papers. This is people subscribing. That's currently. the sound of subscriptions happening live on the air. So if you subscribe, you rate and review, we can bring you better and better and better and more and more and more episodes of this show. So you have to do it. It's your duty. Go but, out and do so it. So basically how it works is that the algorithm is such that yes. if you rate and review, it allows other people to see us, which means we get more ears and listeners which means we get more feedback which means we make the show better yes absolutely so you have to do it it is your duty to god and country go out there and do it it is your duty to the um dog in once upon a time in hollywood who is our lord and savior yes absolutely so let's return attention to this week's incredible chat as you mentioned earlier there is one festival every summer in Chicago that seems to draw the biggest crowds. And yeah. that obviously we are referring to Lollapalooza. And this week we have the mind behind all of the hullabaloo. None other than the one, the only, Perry Farrell. That's right. The front man of Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros. Perry and I chatted about his earliest concert experiences the time that Iggy Pop chased him down to convince him to open for his tour. I loved that story. That was and amazing. I laughed so much. And losing his shoes while on acid at a festival, seeing Blue Oyster Cult for his first concert. And so much more. I do not want you to be delayed. So this is me and Perry. And if anyone is going to Lollapalooza, be safe. Be careful. Be mindful. Watch around you. If you see something... Say, Say something, something. Or do something, rather. Take action. It is a very large, very insanely crazy event, and it lasts for many days. So just be careful, hydrate, and have a good time. This is us. Enjoy! about the upcoming tour what else do you have in store why did you decide to collaborate with people that you might not have you know collaborated with before you know people ask me you know what what took you so long to come out with another recording yes uh i was you know involved with the 25th anniversary of ritual Dilla habitual uh, in Jane's Addiction, and simultaneous to that, it was the 25th anniversary of Lollapalooza. So, you know, what, when that wrapped up, mm-hmm. I started to work on the concept of Kind Heaven. And uh, I started just with, as I say, a concept. The concept was uh, the Second Messianic Era. And what the second messianic era would look and feel like and sound like. So I thought I started, you know, having a good laugh inside of my head. If if the Messiah were to return now, he would probably be, you know, 
spied upon by the CIA and Russia and the FBI. And he'd have to deal with Putin and Trump and all the other crazy people that are around the world right now. And so I started to the scenario out in music. Mm. And within, within that story is a love story, like any good blockbuster mm. story of, you know, Machine Girl, the uh, primary uh, actor falls in love with uh, a girl who is a modern, liberated woman who can do it all. What are the things that you expected you know, when you were making this album, what were the things that you were really confident about during the process? I was very confident that, uh, <laughs> sounds like I'm boasting, but I was very confident that my voice would sound wonderful. Mm. Um, I, I was writing in a new way. Um, I was working initially with digital programmers to start the, the songs off, I would be uh, given beats through Dropbox, mm. you know, beats and melody in some cases. And then uh, I would then record at my studio voice and melody and lyrics and send it back. Mm. And then they would work on it some more and then send me back updates. And it would go back and forth like that. And it was really fun and, and exciting and, uh, you know, waiting for um, them to get, get back with an update on the material. And, uh, and it, got, it got to a, a beautiful place, but you, you can probably appreciate this. So, you know, I have a, a passion for dance music as well mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, rock mm -hmm. and and uh, I, I feel that both styles of writing, both, both styles of music should actually use the help of the other. So in other words, I've always felt that dance music could uh, be helped with an infusion of soul, you know, uh, real voice and, and real instrumentation. And, uh, and vice versa, I've always felt that rock could be helped with um, these amazing subsonic frequencies that uh, mankind has been able to generate electronically. Mm. So it was, it was, I got to the point where I was writing with these digital producers, but then I wanted to infuse a good healthy dose of soul into the material. And so... Um, I began to, you know, extend the, the compositions to, I first extended it to my, my bassist, uh, in Jane's addiction, uh, Chris Cheney, mm -hmm. who started laying down real bass lines and, um, and simultaneous to that, I have an, an old friend, um, Brendan Hawkins, who was writing house music dance music uh back in the you know late 80s early 90s and was really up on the latest software and i was asking him to apply the the uh latest electronic software to the voice as you know i i really am into dubbing and dubbing the voice i learned you know the, those tricks from lee scratch perry Mm -hmm. And, you know, and um, and the original, you know, dub, uh, Jamaican dub, dubbing uh, groups. Yes. And so I but I wanted to take it further because, you know, nowadays the software that we have to dub, we can now glitch and filter and do all these amazing things like like they're doing to guitars. But we can do it now to the voice. And so I wanted to try, uh, you know, experiment with, with that as well as bringing uh, orchestration, you know, strings, the warm resonance of, of um, the bow rubbing against the string with, with an orchestra 
So I have a friend, Harry Gregson Williams, who's worked on a few of my records. Um, he does all of Tony and Wrigley Scott's movies or has in the past done all, all of their movies as, uh, you know, done the scores, soundtrack to their movies. And, um, we're old friends. And so he, he's always up for doing some work on my, on my recordings. So we got that going. And then, then I wanted to, um, also add on the percussive side, I wanted to add real drums and real percussion to go along with these great electronic beats. Mm -hmm. And so I brought in my friend, uh, Taylor Hawkins and there was Tommy Lee that performed on um, Pirate Punk Politician and so I really got the best of both worlds and, and really the best of the new world of, of, of production on this on this latest recording. Do you feel like it's symbolic to have all of these characters and all of these you know people coming back to collaborate with you what 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 does that symbolize really of of the type of message especially that you were talking about earlier you know in terms of your influence how do how do the people and the collaborators that you brought in really emphasize that message or maybe just emphasize the message that you wanted to get across on the album the message i wanted to get across if if i could refine it mm -hmm. down to its simplest form I I believe we're now living in the time uh, we're on the we're on the messianic threshold, mm -hmm. the second messianic threshold, and Messiah is just a a it's another word for a messenger, and I see around me um, the way that we're you know the platform and the medium that we have to spread message is amazing. It's, it's the computer, it's the internet. And so I, I was writing on that premise, you know, uh, exchanging information, exchanging message with people from around the world. You know, um, Bob from bloody Beetroots is living in Toronto and Joaquin Guerrero is French and uh, cascade was living in Orange County, mm. which is south of Los Angeles. But anyway, we were uh, you know, having a great time sharing files. You know, it came time to, to get real, as I say, and went over to Taylor Hawkins' house to lay down drum tracks. And uh, he asked me if I'd ever met Elliot Easton and from the cars. Mm. And I told him, you know, I'd never met him, but he was my... It was my second concert that I'd ever gone to. Oh, wow. I love the car. Yeah. So um, I said, man, you know, I, it, would be an, it would be a great honor. And so Elliot came right over <laughs> and he played on not only uh, the one track I had in mind, but then he played on another one because he was there over at Taylor's house. Taylor has a studio in, in his house. So today, most of the modern musicians have some form or another of recording, uh, you know, equipment. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean, you know, and that, and that is progress for sure, but not all progress is actually good. Mm. Sometimes progress can go kind of sideways, right? And I felt that um, although I'm, I, can de decently produce myself. I felt that the uh, I, I always go for the 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 men who know how to or, or women who know how to do it best. Mm -hmm. As an example, Tony Visconti is a far superior producer than I am, and I knew Tony would know what to do with all this material. You know, the, the orchestra meets the rock band meets the uh, house house uh, DJ, you know, or house producer. So we had an incredible time. Tony came out to Los Angeles and, and put it all together and then did even some more additional recordings uh, w with um, 
parts. You know, I, I told Tony to just go crazy and add whatever he really felt needed to be there, acoustic guitar or some more background voices or, or anything, anything he, you know, felt would be interesting. And so I was learning from Tony. And at the same time, he was learning from the cats that I had around me, like, like Brendan Hawkins, who was, while it's, it's a great way to, to write um, and arrange where, whereby you, you do your recording and you sit back and you listen, and then you can give it off to another room that are, that are doing nothing but special effects. That's what, that's what Brendan was doing. So if you listen really closely, all those wonderful extra special effects to the voice Mm. and synthesized special effects all come into play later on when we go to finally do our, our final mix Mm -hmm. we did in a software called Atmos, Atmos seven, seven point two. And so to explain what Atmos seven two record mixing is, it's how you listen to uh, movies in a movie theater. It's surround sound. Mm. So you can mix anything in surround sound, but not all things are suited for surround sound. But because of the, of the way we recorded, which was we had plenty of delay and special effect, it, it made sense. So rather than hear an explosion in a movie theater, you are now hearing a delay spin around the room. Mm. Um, and, and all this comes into play a, a year from now when we open our doors in Las Vegas for the Kind Heaven Immersive Entertainment Complex, oh, okay. where we have a hundred. Yeah, you get it. So we have a hundred thousand square foot of space in which to immerse you in music and theater, dining and dancing. Mm. When so when is that? Do does everybody know the dates for that? When does that actually kick off? It will kick off close to just around this time next year. Okay. And in Vegas. Yeah. In Las Vegas. We're right across the street from Caesar's Palace. Oh wow. That's so wonderful. And I love that you said yeah. that it is similar to a movie in terms of Atmos because there's a certain way that some albums just feel all encompassing. You know, you could just listen to an album and you can feel that it has much more nuance and much more layers than, you know, something that is just acoustic based or just, you know, really produced by one person. Um, So, so how excited are you then to play that live this year? Because (laughs) obviously you were chatting earlier about going on tour and having, you know, a dancer come and, be a vocalist and in, in, in incorporating yeah. all these people that you've met along the way. So what special yeah. things are you planning for the new tour? Well, the first thing is the, the, the thing that I am personally most excited about is having a choir, having, you know, people that are, will be singing with me. Um, you know, as you can, as you might gather, I, I just love singing and, but, in Jane's and porno, I was, you know, basically singing out there by myself. Mm. And it's, it's, it's so much more fun to have people singing with you in chorus. And, and, um, so here's how, here's how it's going to play out. Eventually a year from now, the doors will open and I have four stages for you know, serious stages, rooms with a stage for for uh, musicians, varietal entertainment, as well as eating stations, places to eat, and oh, wow. we're we're creating Southeast Asian 
um, street street food, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like if you were in Hong Kong, the, the food you might find out on the streets in Hong Kong. Um, so there'll be there'll be food, there'll be music to listen to. There's going to be actors that will seemingly be tourists or locals, or they might be um, politicians, or they might be um, vendors, uh, retail vendors. Um, but it uh, it all is tied to the theme of this the second messianic era mm, mm. being on the, being on the threshold okay. of the second messianic era where you will have you know uh there'll be strife right you'll have the antichrist you will have armageddon but but also i mean i i've been doing a lot of research on that time not a lot of people know much about that time, that prophecy of Isaiah's. But what's supposed to happen, so says my research, is there should be there should be wonders. A wonder is different than a miracle. A miracle is something that should not happen, but but just does. It is ab ab out of out of nature. It is abnormal out of abnormal to nature. A wonder is something that is so amazing that most people don't even recognize the wondrousness of it. Mm. As an example, I can point to this handheld device that we are now uh, working, yes. working with each other on. Yes. To me, the cell phone is a wonder. We're talking to each other. You you might be in London, and I might be in Los Angeles, and we're carrying on this great conversation, talking about um, music that you got to hear in your home mm. that I created with the help of people that were in New York and, and Toronto and you know and Italy and Paris, you know, and and it goes on and on and on. And so I see the wonders. I see the wonders around the the world. Um, I'm going to be coming to you, to your neighborhood pretty soon in this incredible, wondrous instrument, uh, um, uh, traveling instrument called an airplane. And to me, that is a downright wonder how human beings can get in this iron bird and safely fly across the ocean and land safely on time. So I'm looking around and, you know, although this is a story Mm. taken from a prophecy, but it is a prophecy that I truly believe is going to happen. Right. I I really believe in it. So it, it makes it even that much truer and and uh, the belief is it's even more believable because i truly believe it's right. going to happen yeah so tell me then in terms of then involving the crowd and having them right there and playing a set like you'll be doing with something special at Lollapalooza this summer so then how do you take okay. that concept and put it to a okay. festival experience as opposed to something that you can really uh, curate and control, just like how you were saying with having different food stalls and having the sounds coming right. from different corners of the room. How do you then curate that right. same intention with a festival crowd, you know, where you're going to have like a, a half an hour to sound check, uh, you know, things <laughs> could go wrong, as you know, uh, with personal connections yeah. to Lollapalooza. So how, how are you going to, how are you going to plan for that? And what, what do you have, what do you have uh, in store for that? Okay. Well, that's a good question. It is, uh, I call the place in Las Vegas, an immersive entertainment complex Mm -hmm. because it is just that very complex. So what my plan has been is I, I have all that in Las Vegas, but I can pull out, I can, I can draw elements out 
from the complex and take it out on the road. As an example, I can draw the dance, some of the dancers, some of the musicians, uh, and some of the songs and some of the, and some of the set, you know, the, the scene, the sets of the, uh, of the show. Now I cannot take the entire thing out and I can't take the food out necessarily, not yet. But so this is a very, this is the first, this is our first run. And so I want it to be in a very intimate surrounding. So I'm using one room out of the hundred thousand square foot I'm using one room with a stage and what would go on in that room. And that's what's going to, that's what I'm going to okay. be performing okay. Okay. for people. So I cannot, I can't do everything uh, in these, in these uh, small places. So I have a residency, which is one, another element of kind heaven in Las Vegas is that I'm going to have artists, in residency because I, I just love the idea of artists coming in and, and especially newer artists having the time to make their performance better over the course of a month, let's just say, collaborating with other artists that would be there in residency. I would like to mentor them. And so I'm not going to be able to do all that, but I am going to put myself in a residency. Mm. So I'm going to be in residency at the city winery. And then in Europe, I'm going to be in residency at the box. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to be in residency uh, at Lollapalooza in Sweden, in Paris, Berlin. Amazing. And there's, yeah. So earlier you mentioned that the second show you ever saw was The Cars. And so on yeah. this show in particular, we always chat about what your first gig was, what the very first performance or concert that you saw was. So do you remember that time? And do you want to just take me down yeah. memory lane? Sure. So in those days, um, I was going to high school in Miami, Okay. Miami Beach. I had moved down from New York to Miami Beach, Florida, and um, it was a very different world. Um, you know, down down south, they were into things like pro wrestling, so I would actually go and sneak in. We would have a, a gang of us would be like twenty kids and their little brothers, and the Shriners would be guarding the doors, and so we would we would, uh, this sounds terrible, but yeah, we would, we would bust, bust the door open. And then all of us would rush into the, into the arena and they would catch maybe the first couple of kids. Sometimes they would catch the, you know, the, the, my friend's little brothers. And then we would all run up into the stands and, uh, and then, we were we were so good at at uh, faking it. Then we would, in between the wrestling matches. I know this is not music, but it's it's entertainment. Yeah. I see pro wrestling yeah. the same as I do musicians. Sure. Their life is just as hard, and they're on tour and everything. <laughs> yes, else, and there's the right? performative aspect of it. Absolutely, I, yeah. I see what you say. Yes, yeah. I mean, look look at Ric Flair. Mm. I mean, he is he is Freddie Mercury, right? So, so. Anyway, but then, uh, I, you know, I fell in love with music um, from the time I was able to speak. I, I was in love with uh, rock and roll and soul music. I had an older brother who was 12 years older than me and an older sister who was 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. So they, my sister loved, you know, my first record was Sly and the Family Stone and James Brown. Oh, wow. Okay. And I got, yeah. Yeah. And I got that from my sister and my brother gave me 
I know it's still not answering your question on my first concert, but no. I'll get to it. Yeah. My brother gave me the, the Doors and Black Sabbath and Jimi Hendrix. And, um, and we would listen to the Beatles and the Stones on 45s on our porch in Queens, in Flushing, Queens, New York. Um, from the time I could, I, as I told you, from the time I could speak, I knew the dances of the day. Like uh, in the 60s, I, I was born in 1959, but in the 60s, uh, there were a lot of dances that uh, were being traded around along with the music. Like, as an example, the obvious one is, you know, the twist. Mm. Chubby Checker mm-hmm. introduced us to the twist. But then from there came the jerk, the holly gully, the swim, the frug, you know, the pony. And so my my big brother and my um, my big brother was a dancer on this TV show called Hullabaloo. Okay. And um, and I don't know if you know what Hullabaloo was, but it was like, um, you know, it was kind of like um, American Bandstand, but cooler. So they had cooler cooler acts. And my brother uh, grew up to be this crazy wild hippie. My sister grew up and um, gave herself uh, an afro and. Uh, went out only with, you know, black boys. And, and so, you know, I knew everything about soul music as well as rock and roll. My first concert though, by the time I moved down to Miami, my big brother and my big sister had been kicked out of the house and I was alone. So my father moved us down to Florida uh, at the age of 13 I lasted till 17 and then I too got kicked out of the house. But in the, in that time from 13 to 17, I met up with the, with the uh, surfing crowd down in Florida and I became a surfer and a surfers love music. And, um, my first concert was blue oyster cult. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And it was really special. Um, Blue Oyster Cult, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper, and they uh, and they had lasers. So I not only got to see a concert, a rock concert, but it was a rock concert that had lasers. <laughs> and man, I can still remember being high on, I think, you know, quaaludes we were, we were taking at the time, yeah. and just staring staring at this box that was being manipulated in space above my head. <laughs> Just thinking this is the greatest <laughs> thing I've yeah. ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was coming off of his guitar. A laser was coming off of his guitar while he played it too. And so I was hooked right then and there. And so the reason I tell you about sneaking into the wrestling shows is because I also would sneak into the rock concerts and my, my second concert was the Cars, and and um, um, you know, as I tell you, Elliot Easton is now. Re- I recorded now with Elliot Easton, and it was such a an honor and such a privilege. He did such a, an amazing job, but um, I I snuck into that concert too, and so how we did it was. Um, it was, a, I think, the Bayfront Auditorium. So there was a drain pipe that led up to the second floor where there was a window that they never locked. So that's how we would sneak into the rock concerts was we climb up the drain pipe yeah. to the second floor window that was never locked. And that's how, I, and that's how I'd always go until I got my nerve up to ask a girl. Her name was B Hall. I still remember her because she kind of, I took her to the concert and we took Quaaludes, but she passed out. Oh no. So it wasn't much of a day. (laughs) Yeah. I I guess I gave her too Too much. She was a lightweight. Yeah. But they were really strong back in those days, those Quaaludes. 
I don't know if you ever took them, but they were. I've never taken they, them. They, no, I, I I never had an uh, interest in them. But I have had friends who have had unfortunate uh, experiences with them. So yeah. you know, it, it's you got to experience it, and especially if if you're young and you, you're new in the scene. I suppose the excitement attached to not only doing something that you're not meant to do with with drugs and right. doing anything, but also sneaking yeah. in. It's that you're getting like a double dose of thrill um, and you can get yeah. so addicted to, you know, just that thrill of rush and that rush. Yeah. Exactly. So wait, so why? So did you ever tell Elliot that you used to sneak into his shows? Did you ever tell him about the story? Uh, I did. I told him. Yeah, I told him. I did. Was yeah, he like, you I bastard, you, sure. you, owe me, you owe me 10 no. bucks? No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. I mean, look, I, I wanted to see them so badly, I risked getting arrested. Totally, so, totally. You know, it can only be honored, right? Yeah, Flattered. totally. So, and then tell me then about your first performance playing, uh, you were then on stage. Do you remember the first time ever that you got on stage and actually performed for a for an audience so well you know when i was really little as i tell you back to the days of my big brother and sister mm. i was a good singer and a dancer and so there was some we have uh in america summer camps do you have you have them yeah in, in england yeah no i'm actually from okay. i'm actually from south africa so we do we do have oh, uh we okay. do have summer camps yeah i used to go i used to go okay. every summer so i was um i was writing songs when i was a little boy i i was writing songs just for myself in my head and they became popular they were silly little things they didn't they weren't even words i can sing it to you it, it, the first song I ever wrote, it it was a song called Alabooni, and it goes, Alabooni, 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 booni, booni, rats and nudie, 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 Alabooni. And so, oh, like, amazing. I <laughs> and and the kids in the camp, the older kids, thought I was kind of a kick. So they all learned the song, and and at summer camp, I became quite popular and, and in demand for singing. And then then they would ask me to sing for the in the plays. Like there was this play, Finnegan's Rainbow, where I was I sang lead, uh, uh, climb every mountain. I think was the song. And then they did the Wizard of Oz, and I played the part of the Tin Man. So from a very early age. I was comfortable singing on a stage, right? But okay. you know, as as the years went on, it wasn't that cool to be uh, in in uh, singing you know, singing in plays. You know, like I, I just kind of went away from all that, and it wasn't until I was uh, I got my start in show business, believe it or not. I was making a delivery. I was a liquor delivery person. So I would go to nightclubs and, uh, and, and liquor stores and I would show up in a van filled with liquor and they would, you know, make, place an order. I would fill the order. They would, you know, count the bottles and sign off and I'd go to the next place. So anyway, this one place I went to in Orange County in Newport Beach, mm -hmm. it was a private nightclub that did, um, they also did modeling. And the, the woman that ran the, ran the show, they, so they put on a modeling show in this private nightclub. I was waiting, uh, I was delivering liquor. And I was waiting at the bar for them to count off the bottles and uh, sign off and I could be on my way. And over the bar, I was watching their modeling show. And uh, the lady who, who hired the models, she's also kind of a, an escort. She also kind of ran an escort service. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have to admit to you. <laughs> so she asked me, 
she asked me if I if I was a model, and I lied and I said, "Oh, yeah, I I am a model." As a matter of fact, I but I also can sing and dance, and I said I I could um, I could I could you know model in your show, but I could also do things like I could do David Bowie for you if you wanted, or Mick Jagger, or even Frank Sinatra. I can impersonate. I never, I never had done it before, but I just lied. So I basically lied my way into show business. <laughs> so she did hire me, and then, and then I went on to become. Yes, I did for a brief time. I was an escort for her as oh, well. Oh, wow. okay. I didn't know that. Well, I, I had, I had no money, you know, and yeah. I kind of fell into it. Mm. It didn't last long. But um, then I got my, I got my, you know, I got my uh, courage up to be on the stage by doing that. And I was then discovered by a man who was a, a model photographer slash acting manager mm-hmm. who was... Um, living in Hollywood and invited me to live with him in Hollywood and he would manage me. And I did, I had no, I had nowhere to go and nothing else going for me. So I moved up to Hollywood and started taking acting lessons and, you know, uh, that didn't last very long either. You know, that, that situation Mm. was uncomfortable for me, shall we say? Um, but, but I got, it got me up to Hollywood where I met up with the punk rock kids and the musicians. And so I soon moved out of Tony's apartment (laughs) and in with the punk rock kids and, started to audition seriously for for groups and uh, what I would do is I would uh, go through the LA Weekly in the back of the LA Weekly or the music connection in the back was always you know singer wanted or guitarist wanted must love the cure psychedelic (laughs) furs you know joy division uh, Susie and the Banshees and and I would answer those ads, you know, the ones that said that, you know, must like, you know, uh, uh, Huey Lewis in the news, I pass mm. on, you know yeah. what I mean? But, but, when yeah. it, but when it said, you know, Joy Division or, or The Cure, or, you know, I would you answer those ads. Mm, and, mm. and I, when I would audition, so, you know, and I took my, I took my lumps, you know, the first couple of times I didn't even know how to plug a microphone in but I wouldn't let them know. So they would hand me a mic and they would, you know, I would go over to the mic stand and I wouldn't know how to plug it in. They would quickly learn that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And, you know, I had some good cries after auditions because, you know, I, I, you know, I would get turned down and it it would really hurt, but I, I didn't give up. I, I just was so drawn to it. Um, I just really felt in my heart that I I was going in the right direction. Mm. So then how who were the front men that really you were drawn to because obviously Jane's addiction grew a really uh, qu- uh, the fan base grew pretty quickly and that was based off your live shows and you know stepping yeah. onto the LA scene as such a young man and doing everything that you could how did you really cultivate that performance style? I tried my best, as I say, to, in my mind, I was trying to be Mick Jagger and David Bowie, you know, and Lou Reed. Mm. I, I, I loved an Iggy Pop, you know, and that's all I could do. I mean, that that's some pretty good company, Absolutely. Right? You know, and, and I had not... I had seen the Stones, um, and I had seen Bowie. 
Uh-huh. I actually went to the Us Festival and saw David Bowie all by myself. I went out there and I was tripping on acid. Mm. And I remember get, getting up to the front to see him. And I lost my shoes because it was that dense of a crowd. <laughs> yeah. So for the whole weekend, I had no <laughs> shoes because because they were pull, they were like ripped off of my feet. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That's happened to me before at a festival, and I just like stuck it out. Thank God it was like summer, and <laughs> but there's something really wonderful about it as well. It's because then your, your your feet get this like cake of mud and <laughs> and thing, and like your feet just like find a new shoe, and it just makes it you know natural yeah. shoe. <laughs> Yeah, you can yeah. see how they can do it in Africa. Yeah, after a while, you get, you know you what get I mean? the hang of it. Exactly. Like, all right, all right. <laughs> so, so you went and you watched that show. How was Bowie for you? Just separate from obviously having the experience of being in that crowd, because I also feel like sometimes you remember the memory of the band that you're watching that inspires you, but also the crowd around you. You know, and that the vibrance yeah. and, the, you know, just the vibrations of the people. So how was that? Yeah. You know, it, it was a very special time for live music because we were coming just, you know, punk was just, had just happened. And so the audience was, you know, they were quite, quite out of their mind yeah. and and in, a, in, a, in an experience static in a, in a uh, almost like a surreal magical spell and uh, you know groups that were coming from Los Angeles I mean the front men you know Jim Morrison and Darby Crash and those people I looked up to um, and and tried to you know I, I knew that I was the next generation and so I wanted to uphold that that uh, great uh, position and honor of being a, a frontman, a Los, you know, a Los Angeles mm. frontman of, of a Los Angeles group, you know. And the Doors were were there, and I I got to meet the Doors and perform with the Doors, and I got to meet you know members of the Germs and X. And so I kind of felt it was my duty to, and, you know, and then, and then during that time, Iggy Pop came to Los Angeles and heard our, our music. Um, our first tour was with the Ramones. So I cut my teeth opening up for wow. Joey Ramone. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So it went, it went, um, the Ramones, and then we did Love and Rockets after that. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, members of Bauhaus minus uh, Peter Murphy. And then Iggy invited us to go out on tour. He was wow. at a party listening to our record. I walked into the party and he was sitting on the floor. Oh, no way. Uh, listening to our, yeah. Oh, my God. Did you lose your shit? Because he was one of your idols. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually ran out of the party and he came running after me. I just turned around and hauled out. You were like, this is too I, much. Yeah. So he came out to the street and he said, man, come back here. He said, hey, hey, I like your I like your band, you know. You want to go out? You want to go out on tour? And like an, and like an idiot. And I... I, I you know, I can tell you like 10 other times in my life when I had the chance to be cool and I just blew it. <laughs> I just said, I just said, you're my idol. No. You're my I idol. Think... <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think that that's fucking wonderful because he probably gets that all the time, but I doubt that he gets it from someone that he admires as well all the time. Like it's very, di- <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's very different if he's just heard your music and is a fan you know, for him to hear that, well, I, I can saw Im- him coming. You know, well, yeah. One day, one time, yeah. Before that time, I saw him coming down the aisle at our at our show, mm. and I, and man, you know, you you never saw a, a person go from like first year to to 
10th gear <laughs> in like the bat of an eyelash, you know. I saw him and I just started doing backflips and cartwheels. <laughs> Of course, because you, it's it's your this is this is the a god. You gotta you gotta perform, and you have to do your best. Yeah, he's my hero. Yeah, yeah he's my hero. No, that's fucking and, great. And I'm not gonna. Yeah, I will kill myself if I have to. You know. But then, so you talking about just the trajectory of of Jane's addiction and all of those years of touring. You had a reunion tour back in 2001. It was at Coachella, yes. And it was like in the festival's early days and really a different era for, you know, festivals as a concept. So what were your feelings at that time about that reunion? How much had festivals changed since then? And what did you feel going into that one really important show? The people from Golden Voice, Mm. they were early on supporters and friends. And... um, in particular, there was a fellow, his name was Rick Vansett, and, and he was, uh, you know, he was partners with Paul Tillette. He was just a strange, odd person who, you talk about not wearing shoes, he would walk around his, his shows in socks, <laughs> and him and Gary Tovar were always rolling up big joints and smoking them with us, and we're always, you know, not only did they book Jane's Addiction and Psycom, but any shows we wanted to get into, we could get, get into. So they were like family to me. And when they asked me, it was like my brother asking me for help. I'm just going to help him. Mm. So how, that's, that's the first part of your question, right? To answer your first part of your question. The second part, how have, have things changed? Well, you know, festivals were were more unique in those days, I would say. Um, in other words, uh, it wasn't so commonplace to have a festival, and it wasn't so commonplace for bands to play festivals. There, the the roster, you know, the original Lollapalooza was only seven seven. Uh, groups deep right so yeah it might be more commonplace now Mm -hmm. for musicians but i think it's a very very good thing because you know it, it ends up to be that the career of a musician you have to you have to be good at what you do and you have to be able to do it live it's like being a professional athlete you know, it's it's uh, it's something that you have to prove over and over again in front of people. It makes people try harder. Um, it makes the experience, life experience, all all the more thrilling. Mm. And and I think that anytime you have music playing, it's it's a time of celebration or a time of relaxation or vacation. Mm. And so I say the more the merrier. You couldn't have too many music festivals as far as I'm concerned. Mm. No, I agree, especially nowadays where to be, you know, when you were chatting about your residency for Las Vegas for next year, a lot of festivals weirdly are trying to take that idea and put it into the festival experience they're trying to bring you know i went to this festival in in um in helsinki and they had a a a huge screen and they were showing movies and there were beanbags everywhere and it was like this chill area and then there was comedy and podcasts and so a lot of festivals are trying to incorporate that all-encompassing feeling of like this home and i love that you said you know that that is so important for 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 artists to really prove themselves again and again, because I was, I think that leads to my next thing that I was curious about was, you know, wh- why do you keep doing it? What What is the fire? What is the thing that stokes the fire for you? What it, what, what keeps you going every day? Yeah, it, it's, it's easy. I can tell you the answer to that. You know, sometimes on the way to rehearsal, I might not feel well or my throat might be sore, right? 
And I always notice that when I come home from rehearsal, I'm in a much better mood. <laughs> I feel stronger mm. and healthier. And so really the act of singing, the act of playing and making music is so good for the soul. It is. And so, you know, and a musician has got a very unique, amazing position in the world whereby, you know, most, most of the time, uh, when you get to be a certain age, you, you start to become, I don't know, maybe the term might be less useful to the world. You know, like you, you notice that old, older people, they are, they, they get less respect than they used to, you know, it's almost like they're, they're, not as useful as they used to. Which is kind as, of crazy if, if you if you think of it yeah. logically because theor theoretically they have gotten better because they've experienced right. more. So right. yeah, that's it's and they have wisdom. Exactly. They have wisdom to impart. Mm. Well it's the same thing and it's and it's even more so with musicians because we learn every time we perform and sing and, and play we learn more about music. There's a common uh, expression about learning how, how, how to use uh, silence and less notes. You become a better musician through time. Mm. You learn where not to play and, you, and your, your tonality gets truer and your timber gets, uh, you know, uh, your timber gets uh, more, more magnificent and amazing over time through, through practice. And so I guess that's really what it is, is I, I love, I love making music. I love the act of it. I love the, the, the product of it. You know, the, 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 the product of it is, is a beautiful song. And I'm always after creating another beautiful song. And you know what? And it's not just me. I'm also super impassioned to hear other people's music. Mm. That's, you know, hence Lollapalooza exactly. and not wanting to, I mean, I could, I could have sold off Lollapalooza, you know, but I just, I just can't because to me, it, it gives me a chance every year to, to directly become related to contemporary music every year I get to see and witness and and watch and and listen to the message and what's the messaging and you know are they are they speaking about women's liberation are they speaking about uh, you know equality are they speaking about freedom and liberty and justice or are, are they speaking about love what are they talking about what do they look like and I and I it never seems ceases to amaze me, the new groups. I just love them, and and I'm I'm always so happy and proud to be able to exchange music the way I did when I when I first came to Los Angeles as a punker mm. and going to to the you know your friend's apartment and you listen to their record collection. That's what we would do, right? Yeah, you go to their house or their apartment. And they put on their songs. They put on their record collection. And that's how you knew whether you're going to like them or not. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the ones that had the great, re right? The ones with the great record collections you had so much respect for, right? Yeah. They were, like, cool as can be. Like, wow, this guy is so cool. He, he knows so more cool. about the earth than I do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Is there a show that you remember that was particularly crazy like something happened whilst you were playing that you've never seen before maybe something from the crowd or just an experience that really stuck out in your mind is there anything that's particularly memorable for you well i mean i could i could point to the, the fires that were being lit on the uh, lawns uh for the you know the initial lollapaloozas were were super hedonistic you know mm -hmm. and nobody knew how to control those crowds. So you had a mosh pit now, but the mosh pit was times 10. Yes. So that was like insane mosh pit 
with fires up on the hill. And then I could, I could get, I could point to the early days of, of gobbing when people would, you know, spit gobs at you. And I remember singing and, and thinking, you know, Hey, you know, it's a sign of love that they're doing this, but like, (laughs) but then a, a super gob would, would hit me in the eye and, and be hanging off of my <laughs> eyelash. And that I'll never forget. <laughs> oh, my God. You've, you've weathered a war. That's, I mean, I, I don't blame yeah. you for seeing it as a good thing. It's like your way of connecting more with your fans, <laughs> accepting yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and The Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com, Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and The Consequence Podcast Network where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtg pod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already Consequence Podcast Network.